Welcome to Green on the Brain, a podcast started by the Prairie Organic Green Initiative, now hosted by the Manitoba Organic Alliance. We're working to create resiliency and stability in the prairie organic green sector. Our host is Scott Beaton, who operates a 640-acre organic farm in Manitoba. Tune in as each episode, Scott talks to researchers, farmers, and other experts in the organic sector to discuss important issues in organic green farming. Check out our website at manitobaorganicalliance.com for resources, tools, and the expertise you need to get you growing. You can connect with us on Twitter at Manitoba Organic or come meet us at one of the events that we host. Today's episode was recorded at the Prairie Organics 2020 conference at the beginning of March. Scott talked to Sam Hitchcock-Tilton who had a presentation on mechanical weed control and seems to know everything about weeds and how to try and keep them in their place. This episode is sponsored by Regen Ag Solutions. They are the Canadian distributors for the Hudson Bischler equipment that Sam and Scott discussed during this episode. You can find out more about them at regenagsolutions.ca. Now here are Scott and Sam. Uh, hello everyone, we're here at the Prairie Organics 2020 conference in Brandon, Manitoba, and I'm sitting with Sam Hitchcock-Tilton, uh, who's a horticulture instructor at Lakeshore Technical College. Uh, in Wisconsin. Um, he's got a background in vegetable farming and he earned a master's degree in horticulture from Michigan State uh, where he conducted research on precision weeding tools. Sam was a Midwest sales rep for Cultcrest Precision Cultivation Tools uh, and in this work he designed weeding machines for all types of crops, developed new tools and traveled through Europe and the U.S. visiting farms. He writes for Vegetable Growers News and Growing for Market and is the organizer of the annual Midwest Mechanical Weed Control Field Day. He's going to shorten up that name at some point. That day is the nation's premier event for weeding tool demonstrations. He's happy to talk about tool designs and assist with cultivator calibrations. Uh, So yeah, we're really excited to have him on the show. This is something that uh, I know I don't have a a whole lot of knowledge about, but there's certainly a lot of... uh, interest in in equipment at this show um, and people are asking a lot of great questions so I think uh, it's a good chance to get some information so thanks for coming Sam. Yeah could could I start out by just I wanted to address your comment about shortening the name of our field day? (laughs) Absolutely. Well I think I think that kind of gets to the heart of the matter so uh, of course I would like a more shorter name you know and so so the first name I thought of was the Midwest Cultivation Field Day okay but then I realized that um, cultivation means a lot of different things to different people. You know, for example, people talk about, at least in the U.S., a field cultivator. And that's not something that, that takes weeds out while the crop is growing. That's something that prepares a seedbed. And so I think part of the problem is that um, we don't think of weed control as sort of a, a separate um, uh, subject that has its own tools and techniques. And so when we say cultivator, it means all these different things. It's like you can't even talk about weed control on its own. Uh, so that's why the name is as long as it is. And if you guys think of a good way to shorten it, you know, please <laughs> let me know because I agree it's a mouthful. <laughs> no, that's great. Yeah, I think we we definitely use that same terminology, field cultivator. And then I think we use row cultivator as the, the common terminology, at least in this area, uh, for if you're kind of do an inter-row work on, on wider row spacing, like yeah. a corn cultivator, things of that nature. Um, and then, yeah, inter-row cultivator, I guess, is the the common term that I know of uh, if you're talking about going to narrow row spacing to try and get between uh, 
air cedar rows or air drill rows, things of that nature. Yeah. Um, so yeah, no, there's definitely, there's lots of different terminology and I know, uh, sometimes I, I read on ag talk and, and the, uh, American websites and there are some different things. So we'll see if we can keep up with all that as we're going here. What, I guess we could start with trying to figure out what, what's available for, uh, farmers, what kind of, uh, row, uh, weeding equipment are, are things that you're seeing on the market that, uh, that are pretty interesting to you. So is that right? We're, we want to kind of think of things in two different, uh, uh, veins. What one is, um, tools for closely drilled crops, you know, like your cereals, your pulses, or even for you guys here, you know, soybeans on six, eight inch rows. And then the other way we want to look at things is, you know, on wider row crop rows, you know, 20, 30 inches or something. I kind of think so. Like in my mind, yeah, you're going to have your, your single shank in between the row kind of units. And then you've got, yeah, your more, uh, multiple, multiple shank things that are, you're doing some neat stuff with. Uh, yeah, like trying to throw soil or yeah. keep it back and uh, finger readers in the rows and things like that. So, so may, maybe let's start with narrow rows. Sure. Because at least I have a little less experience there, but there's also a, a few uh, less options. Sure. And then we can talk about wider rows and all the different all the different things there. Yeah, yeah, that's great. So yes. the farmers I talk to here in Manitoba, it sounds like, you know, everyone is either using or knows about a flex time harrow. And it sounds like that's the most common tool people are using rotary hose but but a lot of people growing cereals everyone has a flex time harrow um and that that makes sense i think the big thing to know about with flex time harrows is the the newer models available um that keep consistent pressure across the working with um so right now with a normal traditional flex time harrow as the time bends back you know say you hit a rock or a hill or whatever um, it exerts more downward pressure. And so what happens is you really kind of gouge things out um, and it, it levels everything flat, right? Because if there's a hill, it pulls the time back and the time pushes in harder. Okay, which maybe sometimes is good, but generally um, you want to have a crop that is coming up uniformly. It's even in height and it's even in rooting um, uh, depth. So it's anchored all uniformly. So then you want to apply uniform force to all that, right? If you have a time bending back and gouging in uh, harder, you're going to be pulling out some of your crop. And so the newer flex time weeders, and these are companies that I would think of, say, either Treffler um, or um, Hudson Bickler. And I think other companies are coming out with these all the time. They have flex time heroes um, where each time is individually controlled. And so as the time bends back, it doesn't exert more force. They're always exerting the equal amount of force. And so the result is of that, and I think of a good example in, from the vegetable growing world where you maybe have raised beds or potatoes or something like that, but the result is that you can work all the ground um, with equal force exerted on it. So that say if you're working a potato hill, you're not pulling that hill down. Each tine is exerting equal force um, on the flat, on the sides of the hill, on the top of the hill. And so for people that have uneven terrain, you can see how it allows for um, a lot more detail when you're working. So let's see, like the Treffler company, they accomplish this with, um, with a set of nested springs for each time. Um, Hudson Bickler and other companies, they have um, compressed air or hydraulic fluid um, connected each time so everything uh, levels out. So people can compare you know, prices or what makes more sense for them. 
Um, but I think that's sort of on the horizon or the next step in precision for, for flex time heralds. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. I've thought I know, um, for those of us that seed with a shank type uh, seeder, you end up with hills kind of in between each individual row and the row, uh, your crop row is often down below. Um, and I do operate a time meter as well without that uh, kind of real precision control. Um, and I often wonder, am I better off or would I be better off if my row was above and more exposed to the time, but uh, less exposed to being uh, covered all the time. Like I, I'm working the areas in between my rows uh, more aggressively, certainly uh, the way that my system works. Uh, but I also end up burying my crop more than I do the areas in between and often wonder, yeah, like, is it the, the aggressive working to uproot weeds or is it the burial that kind of yeah. does the most in terms of weed control in a cereal crop, for example? The studies that I've seen, there's a researcher, Rasmussen, out of Denmark, and I, he's like the, you know, the grandfather of time hero research. You know, he's been doing that stuff for like 20 years in Denmark. Uh, and the research I've seen from him says that most of the weed death, uh, death from time harrowing is from burial. It's not from uprooting. But what you're saying uh, reminds me there's, um, there's a family that farms in Michigan and um, the Saddlebirds. And I always love talking to them because they grow so many different organic crops. Um, but one thing that they'll do at times um, for with their time weeder is they'll try and steer it accurately. You know, most people it's blind harrowing, which is great. You buzz through the field fast. You don't have anything to worry about, you know. Um, but like what you're saying about worrying about getting those times right in your crop row and burying crop. So if they can steer their um, time weeder well enough, what they'll do is they'll raise up one or two times that are right over the row. Uh, and then they can be a little more aggressive, you know, everywhere else. Yeah. I thought that was a neat way to, you know, try and split the difference. Yeah, for sure. No, and that's, uh, I think we're at a stage where we are getting more people that are operating tine arrows in, in organic systems in Canada, but um, there is a desire to try and find one machine for now that, that works well. And um, I've often thought that the Tyne Hero is the logical one that if you're going to kind of get started in this, mm -hmm. uh, that's the, it's relatively economical compared to some of the other stuff. And yeah, it does have a little bit of flexibility in both timing that you can use it. And uh, yeah, when you start thinking about using RTK and, and lifting up a Tyne or things like that to be a little bit gentler later in the season. Yeah. I think it's got a bit of a fit there. At times, not always, but... You mean at times? <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> uh, I would agree with that, especially because, you know, again, for, for, for my background, thinking about corn and soybeans, the time weeder can be used, you know, at later stages of those crops. Yeah. So as sort of a, a, a single tool, that makes a lot of sense. I always hate when farmers ask about a single tool because, you know, just like when you go to fix something, you don't just have a hammer, you have a toolbox so you can address, you know, each, each problem in the best way. Um, but when, even when you're doing that, when you have, you know, different tools for different growth stages and soil conditions, the time weeder is often the first tool that's in the field, you know, to kind of set yourself up for success and, and start with that size difference between crop and weed. So I think that's a, a great reason why, not that it should be someone's only weeding tool, but maybe your first weeding tool, um, because you can always kind of build off of it. Whereas if you're using a a nice row crop cultivator, 
um, but you didn't have a tine weeder, you know, a lot of times the weeds are already going to be bigger than your crop and you kind of lost the battle, you know, before you started. Yeah, right on. Well, that's a great point. Um, we do want to talk about uh, rotary hose a little bit since we're kind of on that yeah, early stages. Maybe we'll go through the, the cropping here uh, and start talking about kind of early stage stuff and then we'll move towards what you can do later on in crop a little bit. Sure. Uh, my, let's see, my experience with rotary hose is that the, the window that you can use them is smaller than a tine weeder, but it's a very crucial window. Um, but here's another but with a rotary hoe. You also need to have the right soil texture or soil conditions. So the, the time when they're perfect um, is when your crop either hasn't emerged or, or has just emerged. Um, when it's too tender to run a tine weeder through there when you might be pulling things out, especially say hook stage for beans. Um, but, but what you have to have is you have to have a soil crust. And so it can be a really good um, um, complement to a tine weeder because often, especially in heavier soils, when you have that soil crust, the tines aren't going to penetrate and you can't do much. Um, but, but when you have that soil crust for the rotary hole, it breaks that crust up and, and tosses everything into the air, you know, that I'm sure people have seen and just leaves, you know, a carpet of, of naked weeds, you know, separated from soil just lying on the surface and it's great. But when people have sandier soils or there's not that soil crust, they just kind of pull through and they're not flicking weeds out. Uh, so I've heard people say that they're, you know, a great um, complement to a tine weeder. But unless you have just the right soil types, I think like you were saying, the tine weeder, if you can only have one uh, harrow or, or, or blind harrowing tool, the tine weeder is usually a little more widely applicable. Does that sound right with your experience? Yeah, yeah, that sounds exactly right. And I know uh, we've got growers that are in a little stonier conditions where the, you're worried about wear on a, on a rotary hoe and things like that. Um, but yeah, we've... Like you say, we've all seen the videos of going through the time meter, and I think when it or a rotary hole and when it works, I think it's it's awesome. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, definitely a tighter window from what I've seen that it it is going to work in kind of thing. Well, it's like there. It seems like there's literally a single day where if you have a rotary hole and you use it, you know, you may not need to weed for the rest of that crop, uh, but it's a single day, so you you know you got to be able to get in there and yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's excellent. Um, and have you seen, uh, like some of the older rotary hose were a spoon type configuration and now there's more, uh, it's almost a hybrid between a, a tine weeder and a hole where it's, uh, uh, a rotary tine, I guess is what I would almost call it. I don't know if there's, I know Einbach makes one and I'm yeah. not sure if anybody else does, but if that's something that you see as being useful, uh, more I, so or. I don't have direct experience with that. Um, I've spoken with the Einbach salesman about that and some farmers in Europe who are using it. And what they told me is that it could be a good tool, but it tended to be too aggressive. And so, you know, for, for some people with the right soil at the right time, it worked great. Um, but that for a lot of people, it was too aggressive to use on a consistent basis. Yeah. Okay. That's good. That's kind of what I've heard about it too. I haven't, uh, seen one in action but uh, well the first thing is we need to have a name that everyone calls it so we know <laughs> what we're talking about exactly no right on okay uh so let's move forward three weeks and uh say we're getting to a stage where crops getting a little bit taller um what uh what do you see as being a useful tool in 
in prairie cropping systems uh, to, to deal with weeds. If we missed them uh, or didn't do a great job earlier, now we got to come back. Well, maybe the first the first place to start is still the tine weeder okay. because I think it's important that people remember the different ways to set it. So you've got, you know, the tine weeder sort of has two angles of the wire, right? One, one angle comes from the toolbar and kind of shoots back and then there's a bend in it and it kind of goes down. Um, but the thing to remember, and I'm sorry if I'm telling people something they already know, is that that point that, that um, contacts the soil, you can either pull that point or push that point depending on the angle that you set it. Yeah. Um, and so, so when you're first uh, running that time weeder um, and your crop say hasn't emerged or has just emerged, the, the least aggressive setting is to be pulling that point through the soil. And as your crop grows or your weeds grow and you need to be more aggressive, then the, the most aggressive setting is to push that point through the soil. So just to make sure people are aware that even just within the tine weeder and every other tool, um, we can we can really adjust it to be more or less aggressive. And so as we're moving through that early crop stage, we can even be adjusting the tine weeder from pulling it to pushing it. Right on. And so what do you like to do when you're, uh, if you are trying to be a little more aggressive on the crop, how do you decide when that was too aggressive uh, as, you're, as you're going across the field kind of thing? Yeah. Um, let's see. The first... The first, I'll, I'll say two things that are helpful just to kind of take your observations. Um, one is, if this makes sense for you, to have someone out there helping you, at least when you're first calibrating your machine, especially if you have larger fields that you're going to be um, running for some time on, it can really make sense time-wise to have someone there for 15 minutes instead of getting in and out of your tractor. Um, and the other hot tip, if people are familiar with um, GoPro cameras or any type of camera that connects um, wirelessly to your cell phone, you know, and that can cost, I don't know, $100 or $200, but mounted on your cultivator and then set to your phone and your cab, um, that can give you really great feedback um, on what's going on. Again, kind of saving you time. Yeah. Um, yeah, now, now to your question, and that's a tough one that from a research perspective, I think people are always running mathematical models on, on how much crop to take out versus how much weed to take out. Um, well, and I guess, bef again, before I even start to answer your question, is to think about seeding density when you're seeding. Um, and it really matters where you're getting your recommendation from, um, both because one, in an organic system, we're worried about canopy closure. To, to better compete with weeds. So that's one reason we want a higher density. But the other thing is we know when we cultivate, we're gonna to expect to take out a certain amount of our crop every time, you know, say 3% or less. Uh, and so even before you get into the field, you know, during the winter, make sure that your seeding density um, is allowing for that. And of course that even depends on crop, right? Something like soybean or dry bean, if you take out some plants, the rest of the plants will kind of fill in uh, and make up for your yield. But for something like corn, every plant that you take out is lost yield that you're not going to get back. Um, so to consider that the seeding density before you even start. But now to finally answer your question, um, one thing is um, definitely taking out some of your crop. And there's a great you know rule of thumb that that all the old timers say, which is if, if you're not killing some of your crop, you're not getting close enough. Um, and as a rule of thumb, I would say something about three percent is is okay to, to be taken out uh, from your crop uh, each time. If you start getting above that, um, you know your your weeding operations add up, and and you're really taking out too much. Um, and weeding wise, uh, 
this is where it really pays off to have the size difference between your crop and weed. And I think one trap that farmers can fall into is thinking that one of these machines is going to be sort of magical. And the fact is none of them are, it's all just metal and dirt. Um, and so you have to have that size difference. And so there's a lot of other pieces of the puzzle that add up to that. But if you have weeds as big or bigger than your crop, there's only so much you can do. And, you know, between um, rows, you can, you know, usually get that pretty clean with the right tool because there's no crop there. But within your crop row, um, if your weed is as big or bigger than your crop, uh, you know, no, um, no rule of thumb for, for how to set your cultivator is going to help there. Yeah, no, that's perfect. Uh, I think that's definitely something that, yeah, sometimes we expect a little bit more than is possible. And yeah. So you got to you gotta make sure you deal with things early on. And if you didn't, then in an organic system, maybe that means you start over and reseed and, and give it another go. And I think people are often afraid to, yeah. to make that choice soon enough. But, uh, yeah, when you see, like you say, if you you've got little seedling crops and you're getting bigger weeds coming in already, then I imagine more often than not, the right choice is probably to, yeah. to start over. And there's maybe two things to be said about that, that sort of moment or that decision is um, by us in the Midwest, and I've heard farmers here in Manitoba, you know, people try and seed a little bit early so that like you're saying, if, if things go wrong and you need to replant, you've given yourself time to do that. Yeah. And the other piece about that, I think, is the, the ecological weed management or what I think of as weed karate, you know, knowing your enemy. So your the weeds on your farm, you want to know, you know, your top three to five weeds and you want to know the basic points in their life cycle. You know, when do they um, germinate? When do they um, start growing actively? How long between when they germinate do they set seed uh, and how long between flowering are their seeds viable? And so if you kind of know the, your main enemies on your farm and you know um, when they're going to be most competitive to your crop, you can really try and avoid those windows. You know, so maybe you're seeding before they come up, maybe you're delaying seeding so you can use tillage, you know, as the weeds are coming up. Um, yeah, so that, so that you're using a lot of information when you're deciding your planting time. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I get the sense and uh, I've often thought this, yeah, there's a, there's a lot more that goes into weed management than dealing with weeds when you see them, right? And you're you're leading us down a path that I think is a good thing to talk about here and thinking about increased seeding rates and uh, and all these other things are important. I guess, are there other things that are top of your mind when you're trying to uh, yeah manage weeds in, a, in an organic system before you even think about seeding uh, in terms of, yeah, different seed or, or more competitive varieties, things of that nature. Yeah. I guess the, 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 I think people can start to get turned off when, when you talk about these ecological weed management strategies, as opposed to talking about a shiny piece of metal. I know I do. That's why I got into weeding tools, you know, but then as I got into weeding tools, you realize if you really want to solve a problem for a farmer, it's about thinking about the big picture. It's not about selling them a shiny piece of metal. The, the, the tool has to fit into the bigger picture. And the other thing that I, I hope makes it the ecological weed management more interesting to people is that it takes uh, a lot less time. Like a lot of this stuff is you on your computer or with a book in the winter and, you know, sitting at your chair with a cup of coffee, you know, which sounds great to me. Yeah. Um, and, you know, a half an hour spent in that way 
is is literally worth you know an entire crop or five hours in the field um, without doing that work. So, but anyway, to your to your question, I think the big thing is identifying your main weeds, identifying the main um, the main uh, parts of their life cycle, and then identifying the weakest point in their life cycle. And if you want to, you can look look all that up on your own. It's it's pretty interesting. But there's so much um, extension in information out there, and especially here in Manitoba, Saskatchewan, it seems like you guys have um, have people at the universities doing real clear work on that. Um, so looking up for each weed, when it, when are its um, when are the susceptible points in its in its life cycle, and then also think about the sort of personality of that weed. So is it like a Canada thistle that can sp- spread through roots? Um, is it like, um, say, a velvet bean for us in the Midwest that has very large seeds that can emerge from deeper in the soil profile? Um, is it something like a wild oat that has a smaller seed and is only going to emerge from the surface? Um, and then the other thing, you know, this starts to get real interesting. The other thing is matching your tillage to those weed life cycles. So what time of year are you going to um, till? Okay. Um, how are you going to till? Where are you going to place those weed seeds? So, for example, there may be times when you want a moldboard plow and that whole carpet of weed seeds you can bury, say, eight inches deep, and you're not going to see it again until you bring them back up. You know, maybe you want to do that. Um, at the same time, uh, in terms of the weed seed bank, right, how many weed seeds do we have that are going to always be coming up? And unlike your bank account, you always want to be drawing that seed bank down, you know. Um, in terms of your weed seed bank, the best way to get rid of weed seeds is to leave them on the surface. That's where they're going to naturally degrade the fastest. That's where birds and insects have access to them to eat them for winter food. Um, so thinking about the life cycle of those weeds, the timing of the tillage that you're doing, the type of the tillage that you're doing, um, and then the way that cultivation, uh, or sorry, mechanical weeding, uh, to be more precise, really fits into that is the depth that you're running the tools. Um, so I show a, 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 a cheeky slide in my presentation comparing European farmers to North American farmers. Um, and the joke is that the European farmers are more refined. You know, they're all wearing cologne and stuff. But what I mean by that is um, we, we have sort of different cultivation philosophies that have, that have evolved, I think. And the Europeans um, have really gotten into um, one, uh, more shallow cultivation and two, removing weeds through either uprooting or disturbing um, the top layer of soil so that uh, you break the capillarity in the soil and the weeds that are rooted there you know, can't get access to the moisture below, whereas your crop is rooted more deeply. And um, Whereas, especially in America, we've gone a different direction and we cultivate deeper. And another reason we cultivate deeper is that we kill weeds by burying them. We throw soil all over, you know, and you know, good, bad, or indifferent, one's not necessarily better than the other, but they're different methods and it's good to know the pros and cons of each. And, you know, when we're talking about tillage, I think a, a important rule that people should remember, and maybe, you know, you want to get this tattoo on your body somewhere, is most agricultural weeds will germinate from the top inch and a half or two inches of soil. Okay, so that means one, um, if I have a weed that I, you know, buried eight inches below or something, if I don't bring it up, it's just going to stay there, you know, out of sight, out of mind. Um, but when I'm cultivating, if I'm always cultivating, you know, two, three inches deep, what I'm doing is I'm always bringing up new weed seeds. 
And there's other things to think about too, in terms of, you know, here with soil moisture, I'm working more and more moisture out of the soil than I need to. Um, and the other aspect um, is soil health. I'm, I'm disturbing more soil than I need to. Um, but I think there's a lot to be said for working the soil more shallowly um, so that one, we're not bringing up new wheat seeds. Um, two, we're disturbing less of the soil from a soil health perspective. Um, and, and three, it, it also allows us to get in and work the crop when the crop is smaller because we don't have to worry about burying it. And the, the other thing is we can get in um, sooner after a rain. So I had an experience at a field day in Germany. It rained the day before. We were thinking, oh, man, we're not going to be able to get in. And the next morning, I had the best cultivation of my life because the top, say, two, just about two inches um, was just moist enough where it would crumble. It was just perfect. And below that, if we would have cultivated that, we would have had a muddy mess. So the shallow, the more shallow you can cultivate, you can get into the field sooner. And, you know, if you want to run deeper, you always can, but it's nice to have the option to run shallow. Right on. Oh, that's, uh, that's all really, really interesting stuff. What are some of the things you look for in a good inter, inter cultivator? And I think you've covered a good chunk of it there with the kind of the depth and things of that nature, but. I would say the big thing is, and again, I'll, I'll speak from, from my sort of Midwestern perspective and hope that it's applicable here, here in Canada. Um, all, I would say, all of the, the cultivators I see, unless they're, you know, purchased very recently, um, they all have Danish S-tines, okay, which is um, great. The reason the Danish S-tines came in in the 70s from Denmark is um, they have advantages over a straight shank. Okay. Um, one, they will um, flex around a rock if they hit a rock. So great. We're breaking less steel and needing to replace um, less pieces. That's great. The other thing is they vibrate as they move. So that's great. They, um, they dislodge weeds from soil and you get a more consistent kill. So that's great. Um, the problem with Danish S-tines is maybe twofold. Okay. One is because they're so flexible, they won't break on a rock you also can't get too close to your crop. They're so flexible, they're, they're going all over. Um, and the other thing is that, um, kind of similar to what we were saying about flex tines, the further that they bend back, um, the angle of that shovel into the soil changes. So as they bend back and meet resistance, they're digging more deeply. Okay, so we're not getting consistent uh, depth control and we're not really getting um, consistently shallow depth, okay? Um, now, the other thing about a Danish S-Tine is uh, you can't adjust them individually, the depth, right? You've got your gauge wheel on each parallelogram, and you can crank that up and down, and you're changing all three or four or five Danish S-Tines, right, down into the soil or further up, a tool that, that uh, beginning with can't even, you know, get very shallow. Um, so I would say one of the biggest differences between um, the more modern weeding tools and this older style is being able to adjust the depth individually on each shank. Okay. And you don't have to buy, you know, a brand new, uh, $20,000 weeding machine to do this. You can also buy kind of aftermarket, um, uh, what we call, uh, C springs or S springs. And what those are is it's kind of the top half of the Danish S tine. So it clamps onto your toolbar, say two inch square or whatever you have. Um, and it curves around so you get that nice flexibility, but then um, it has a bracket and you put a straight shank into that bracket. 
And what that allows you to do is a few things. One, the shovel on that straight shank is going to be at a shallower angle, so you can run uh, more shallowly. And two, what that design does with the spring, but then the straight shank, is it gives you, gives you sort of the best of both worlds between a Danish S-tine, um, which flexes around rocks and, and um, disturbs um, the soil around roots of weeds, but also a straight shank, which is much more accurate. Um, so a, a tool like this, you can get a lot closer to the crop row. Um, and then now you can start playing around with the depths individually. So what I might do is um, right next to the crop row, especially, you know, I want to get in there as early as possible. I'm going to set that um, shank to run as shallow as possible. And then further into the row middle where I can be more aggressive, I'm going to run that more deeply. And then there's, you know, of course, other things to think about, maybe where you have your tire tracks, you want to set them, uh, you know, even deeper to break up compaction and things like that. So I think that's the first step is being able to adjust your tools, um, the depth of your tools individually instead of, you know, for an entire parallel unit. Right. Yeah. Oh, that's great. That makes a lot of sense. Um, timing of using a, a machine like that, I guess, when's the... Uh... When's that kind of critical stage where you go away from uh, a time meter or, or an earlier tool and, and start moving into a row cultivator type situation? I would I would think of it I, I think of it as a weeding pyramid, you know, because you have to set the stage with all of your ecological weed control, um, and if you don't do that, you know, you don't have a good size difference between crop and weed, and your weed density might be too high. So say, for example, if you have 100 weeds, you know, per row foot or something, and your cultivator's tuned up very well, you're killing, say, 85% of them, you're left with 15 weeds. Um, but if you have, say, 1,000 weeds coming up in that square foot, you're left with 150. So you can see that um, irrespective of how your cultivator's working, the density of your weed seeds really matters. Um, but anyway, uh, I think of using a, a harrow first, you know, as a, as a blind tool before emergence. Um, then after emergence, at least once, you know, maybe twice. Um, and then and then I think of running through with, with the row crop cultivator. Another thing to mention here in terms of tooling on that first pass um, is that the, the shovels right next to the row replace them so that they're not full um, A-blades. Either buy half shovels or cut them in half um, or get what we call L-blades or beet knives. And, and those, you know, have a vertical face running next to the crop and then go out um, to engage the soil further away from the row. And that allows you to get, you know, really close, say, if you have decent um, steering, maybe two inches on either side of the crop row. Um, and after that first pass, you know, later on, then you can start, depending on your sort of cultivation philosophy, you can start either throwing soil into the row um, to, to bury weeds or you can use things like finger weeders to reach into the row and disturb the soil. Right on. That was going to be where I went next was yeah, finger weeders and other, other tools for getting within the row. Uh, what do you see as uh, kind of a few options that seem like they might be something that people should be considering? Well, okay, let, let's start at sort of the cheapest option, um, which would be your crop shields. I think a, the, a common misconception that I had for a long time is that crop shields are for shielding your crop. Uh, but I think a better way to think about them is that crop shields are for um, calibrating the amount of soil that you're throwing into the row, right? So if you um, lift that crop shield, you know, far off the ground, you can tuck a lot more soil 
um, right into the road at Berry Weeds. Um, and if you put them down, you know, lower to the soil, you're going to be able to tuck less soil in there. So the idea is that you're adjusting your crop shields um, to throw as much soil into the row as possible um, without burying your crop. So that's one thing. That's a sort of real cheap way to get in row control. Um, and then the next step up, I think, would be finger weeders. And these are a fantastic tool. I think a lot of growers, um, it's a game changer for a lot of growers. Um, you can either buy, you know, an entirely new machine with finger weeders on them, or what a lot of people are doing are getting um, individual arms that bolt onto your existing cultivator. Um, and those cost ballpark of $1,000 per row, you know, so a 12 row cultivator is something like um, $12,000 to add 12 rows of finger weeders on. Um, the way they work is they're mounted on spring-loaded arms. So just like with almost all the tools we use, we want them to be able to respond to the ground conditions. You know, that's why we have gauge wheels on our parallel linkages. So, you know, we have consistent depth. And similar with uh, finger weeders, we want them to have some give to them. So they're on spring-loaded arms. Um, there's different hardnesses of finger weeders for most of the companies. So if you go to buy finger weeders, um, the company should ask you if they're doing a good job, they should ask you what type of soil you have. And they should match um, the hardness of that plastic or the finger weeders to the soil that you have. Um, and what the finger weeders do, it's kind of crazy to imagine, but they literally will reach in the row. Um, and underneath there are metal pins that engage the soil. And think of a record player, the diameter of those pins is smaller than the diameter of the plastic fingers. And so because they're both turning to cover the same amount of ground, the smaller diameter pins are turning a lot faster. And so what does that mean? That means that the fingers on the outside uh, turn at a different speed than the metal pins. And so they will flick weeds um, out of the row, which is pretty neat to see. Um, but the, the way to use those is um, start by setting them so that the fingers, if you're using them at an earlier crop stage, are not within the row so that they're maybe, you know, say an inch on either side of the row and they'll, they'll get, you know, closer than your, than your sweeps would. And as your crop matures, you can set those fingers so that they're touching. And then you can even set those fingers so that they're overlapping um, and literally reaching, you know, right around the crop row again to break up um, the soil in that top inch or so, so that your crop is rooted more deeply, but the weeds rooted in that top inch are either going to get flicked out um, or starve for moisture. Oh, that's great. Um, good. I wonder if we could talk a little bit about uh, what you've seen where there's a, with all the soil health talk uh, and the kind of regenerative agriculture yeah. movement, um, there's a lot of interest in going to uh, uh, less till for sure and, and maybe a kind of zero till situation at times. Um, are there tools that you see being useful and yeah, really trying to reduce tillage, whether that's at, at seeding time or uh, or other tools after. This is a really tough one um, because a lot or all of these tools are meant to work with clean soil with little residue, um, and and it's really interesting. Just in the last year or so, people have started to you know pipe up during my talks and say, "What about soil health?" and and I always kind of cringe. Oh God, but uh, but yeah, that's a, a good question. I think a few things. Um, one is to think about the any any soil disturbances is, is bad for soil health. And that's one reason that um, a lot of people are into shallow cultivation. So we the first way to reduce tillage is the width of tillage, right? So a lot of people are into strip till, at least in the U.S. So we're just 
tilling, you know, an eight to 12 inch wide band where we're planting our crop. And other than that, we can leave that undisturbed. Um, but another way to think about minimizing tillage is less the width of the tillage, but the depth of the tillage, right? Am I, am I disturbing eight inches of soil or an inch and a half of soil? Um, so I think that's another, another way that shallow cultivation comes in is, is being able to disturb less soil. Um, another technique that makes a lot of sense to me is applying some type um, of microbial food when we're, when we're cultivating the soil. Um, so whether that's a compost tea, a humic or fulvic acid, some carbon source for the soil microbes, um, right before or right after you're running your cultivator on the same pass, you know, have it, mul uh, have it mounted either in front of your tractor or on the cultivator itself. So that while we're doing soil disturbance, you know, we're acknowledging that and we're, we're feeding the microbes as we can while we're running through the soil. Um, but I guess the short answer to your question is, there's no great answer uh, because these tools are generally meant to run with little residue. Um, and I think I should add, you know, again, none of these tools are magic and it's important to always be observing because um, using a new tool can solve some problems, but it can also cause new problems. So, you know, your, your question reminds me, for example, um, some organic snap bean growers in Michigan, they, um, started using finger weeders and they said, oh my God, this is incredible. We don't have to pay for any hand weeding anymore on organic snapping. It's incredible. Um, and they said, but the, the issue now is the finger weeders can grab stones and pull them, uh, you know, and you look back and you've just erased, you know, a hundred yards of row. So they said on the whole, they've saved us an incredible amount of money, but knowing the limitations of the finger weeders, we still need to have a crew um, walk the field before planting to pull out any large rocks. So overall, you know, it generally saved them money, but they had to be aware that, you know, there's still issues that they might need to confront, you know, when using a new tool. Oh, excellent. Um, I guess I feel like we're, we're getting closer to the end here. Are there any things that you see coming uh, in the near future that uh, you're really excited about uh, any new technology, things like that, that you think are going to really help to maybe revolutionize some of the some of the ways that we do things? I suppose, I mean, the big thing that, that we have to acknowledge is camera-guided machines. Um, and that's really exciting. But I think it's also out of the price range of a lot of growers. And at least that's what I'm hearing is that, you know, of course, it, it would be great to have that machine. Um, but at forty, sixty thousand dollars, you know, people just can't make it happen. And again, you know, these are mostly being developed in Europe, um, where you know prices for everything. Um, sorry, not prices. Where there's just a lot more government support for farming, so it's just kind of a subsidy for everyone. It's a subsidy for the machinery manufacturers to make better tools because the farmers can afford them, and it helps the farmers afford these tools. But anyway, um, the camera guided machines, I think, are incredibly. Um, effective. And every year the models get easier and easier for farmers to use, you know, to the, you know, and, and I've only been working with camera guided machines now for say four years, but even in that time, the interfaces have got easier and easier. Um, the, the neat thing to remember with camera guided cultivators is what you really, what you're really buying, what's really giving you value is the camera guided hitch. Because what you can do with that is think of it as, as a tool on its own, because you can attach that hitch to different cultivators. You can attach that hitch to your seeder. You can attach that hitch to 
uh, a flex time hero. And so when you, you know, make sure and get a model, if you do, that has um, a, a quick attach hitch so you can, you know, go quickly between different implements. And that's where it really affects all the different parts of your, um, of your farm. Um, so I think that's really exciting. They're getting easier to use, but the price, you know, at least for now, puts it out of the range of a lot of people. Um, I think the other thing to remember in terms of technology is kind of looking backwards in a way in that the most important thing with cultivation, I would say, is one, having the right tooling to let you get close to the crop, um, two, being able to use it shallowly, um, but three, being able to guide it in some way. And there's a lot of neat ways that people have, have come up with that, you know, over the decades, whether it's a cultivation mirror mounted, you know, in front of you looking back at your cultivator, whether it's a belly mounted or front mounted cultivator, um, whether it's say an older guidance system that can be had for a song, say like a Buffalo Scout system from, you know, 20 years ago, people can buy for maybe $300. Uh, that really is going to improve what you're doing. Or even, you know, a piece of rebar, you know, mounted in front of your tractor. I talk to growers and that's how they cultivate and that works. And say if they've got hills, they'll put that rebar um, on one or two links of chain so that as they go up a hill, the rebar responds similar to, to the cultivator is going to be sliding behind you. Um, so I think there's a lot of ways for people to get guidance um, for their machines, whether they want to or are able to spend a lot of money on a camera guided hitch um, or whether they can use some of these older tools that may not be as precise, but are still, you know, improving your accuracy. Right on. Oh, that's great. That's lots of good tips. I know you guys have been doing inter-row cultivation for, for a long time, and uh, it's newer to most areas of the prairies. Uh, there's some that have grown sugar beets for a long time and others that have been grown corn and sunflowers and soybeans even uh, for some time now that have done some a lot of inter-row tillage in the past but for most of us it's something that's relatively new and so being able to tap into your knowledge there is is really useful and i think really helpful to a lot of the people here so yeah thanks very much for for coming on sam that was great to hear some of your thoughts and uh hope to, to hear some more and see some more of your work in the future yeah it's a pleasure and i also want to say thanks to your organization for having me out um it's really neat to be here, get to know the farmers here. You know, you guys have different crops, different cropping systems, and I appreciate getting to know that. So thanks for having me out. Okay, talk to you again. Thanks to our sponsor for this episode, Regen Ag Solutions. They're farmers based in Manitoba who sell Hasenbichler mechanical weed management equipment, fertilizers, biologicals, humates, and foliar enhancers to organic and regenerative farmers. We have Alex here from Regen Ag Solutions to tell us a little bit more about them. Hi, everyone. My name is Alex Bosch, the owner of Regen Ag Solutions, a local Manitoba company selling Hudson Bichler weeding equipment across Canada and organic slash regenerative fertilizers, biologicals, and biostimulants within Manitoba. We are farmers from Eli, Manitoba that were looking at a more productive and ecological way of producing nutrient-dense food and improving our soils. We decided to start transitioning our farm to organic in 2016-17. Our first step was to look at ways of farming organically without delaying seeding and overworking our land in the spring. We needed good means of post-seeding and post-emergence weed control with minimal tillage and did not see any great options locally. After a lot of research 
and opinions from organic growers in Europe, we decided to purchase a Hudson Bichler tine weeding harrow from Austria and installed a cover crop seeder on it. It worked so well for us that we decided to approach Hudson Bichler and become the Canadian distributor for them. They are a small and innovative manufacturer that makes extremely solidly built machines and are very open to custom building. They make anything from tine harrows, rotary hose, and top of the line camera guided interrow cultivators to specialty potato harrows, hill cultivators, seed bed cultivators, etc. We now use the harrow for both weed management and underseeding sweet clover and other cover crops. Last year, we also added a 40 foot camera guided interrow cultivator on narrow spacing char farm. This has been the best purchase to date in terms of weed control, and the combination of the two is ideal. Sam's presentation on weed management in organic farming at this year's organic conference really confirmed our experiences and gave us confidence in our direction. His machines of choice for ideal weed control were also tine harrows and interrow cultivators, as well as trying not to till below two inches during the growing season. So in addition to selling Hudson Bichler equipment, we decided to also start selling fertilizers, biologicals, and biostimulants in order to increase soil and plant health. This was sparked by an extremely thought-provoking and life-changing agricultural course with Graham Sate in 2017. We want to feed the carbon cycle and increase nutrient density. So we sell things like compost tea, so eco-tea, fighter for disease control, humic and fulvic acid, liquid fish, micronutrients, etc. These products, plus a very diverse crop and cover crop rotation, will hopefully really improve water infiltration on our land in combination with increasing soil life and not just organic matter levels. It will also make our plants more resilient to increasingly extreme weather patterns. Please give us a call at 1204-999-1232 if you'd like any more information on the best way to improve your organic yields. We almost always have tine weeding units in stock and they are among the cheapest weed control tools available to farmers. Thanks for the support. Hopefully the organic and regenerative movement continues to grow and change our food system. Keep up the great work. We'll put Alex's contact details on our website if you want to find out more. We've put some links to mechanical weed control resources on our website at manitobaorganicalliance.com. Do you have any ideas for future episodes? Get in touch with us on Twitter at Manitoba Organic or visit our website and let us know. See you next time.